Let's pray. Father, you have blessed us and we are grateful. What a thing you have done to draw us to yourself. Rebels who once were against you. Now children of the true and living God. Come and speak to us as your children. That we may cling more closely to you. That we may depend more upon you. And that we may love you more and more as we remember and are reminded of what you have done for us in the gospel. We praise you, O God. Come. There is foolishness standing and foolishness sitting. We know not what to do with these words, but only if your spirit comes. So please work in spite of our sin and remaining corruption for your glory. Draw us to yourself, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Our text is Romans 1, verses 5 through 7. Hear the word of the Lord. Speaking about Jesus Christ our Lord, Paul says, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing and now the proclamation of his word. You know, in the Delta, sometimes at least we've experienced a longer goodbye. When I was growing up, we had friends that grew up in Brazil and we used to call them Brazilian goodbyes. You know, it would take a long time. You'd, you'd, you'd walk out the front door and you'd still be in the, the driveway for 45 minutes. Long goodbyes. Paul likes long hellos, I think. Um, at least here in Romans, this salutation that he has here at the beginning of this letter, um, it, it really is just a series of introductions, right? So first we met Paul. Um, he serves and was called and is set apart for God's gospel, which was proclaimed in the Old Testament and, and now has reached fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And we entered into verses three and four where we met Jesus, the, the one whom Paul serves Paul reminded us that Jesus is the king who has done all things necessary for our salvation. And now, having completed his definition of the gospel and his reference to it in so many ways, Paul turns his attention to his particular ministry as an apostle of the gospel. And as he tends to do, mentioning his his apostleship connected to the gospel that he's just described, Paul's mind wanders to another subject. And so tonight what we're going to see is that, that he begins to talk about his apostleship and he wanders to address the recipients of the letter, which is appropriate. He is saying hello to them. It's good for him to, to recognize them, which he does there, in, especially at the end of verse 7. But, but this is all just very Pauline. You know, Paul wanders sometimes, especially when he gets excited. He starts writing and thinking, and, and we get these, the, these seven verses that are all one sentence in the Greek, just sort of talking about all the gospel things that he loves. These words that he's writing here in verses 1 through 7 are not exhaustive. I mean, that's why the, the 16 chapters that follow are here. 
right? He's just sort of mentioning some things that he's going to expand on as he gets going. And he'll get into all the details of these things. For now, he is simply introducing himself and introducing Jesus to those he's writing. And these gospel mentions and gospel allusions just sort of pop up because that's how much he's devoted to this message he's been called to preach. It's kind of like talking to a toddler about something they love so much. And they're like, well, I love this about it, and I love this about it, and oh, what's that? And oh, and I love this about it, and oh, by the way, I forgot about this too. And that's kind of how Paul is, especially here at the beginning. There's two main stops for us to take as we work our way through verses 5 through 7. First is Paul's ministry, and second is Paul's recipients. Paul's ministry and Paul's recipients. He, he, he introduces them, and as he introduces them, says some very profound things about them. So first, let's look at Paul's ministry. It's all there in verse 5. Speaking about Christ, the one whom the gospel concerns, there at the beginning of verse 5, he speaks of Christ. He, he's the one through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Three things about Paul's ministry. First, it is not a ministry from himself. It is a ministry from Jesus. It's a ministry that's been given to him. And what do we mean? What is Paul's ministry? Well, if we're going to sum it up in the, in the words that we have in front of us, his ministry is grace and apostleship. But it's still even more complicated than that. Verse 5, especially the first half of it, is, is very confusing. It may not seem confusing in the English, but in the Greek it is. That we, at the beginning of verse 5, through whom we, is, is something in grammar called an editorial we. You may have heard it referred to more often as a royal we, or, or a, a, a plural, uh, excuse me, uh, a majestic plural, right? Where, where a monarch would speak in, in the plural, but simply referring to themselves, not, not referring to them and their subjects, but simply referring to themselves. Um, it, it's a way of speaking that is exclusive to the user. So Paul, um, when, when he says we in verse 5, he doesn't mean himself and his readers. He just means himself. It, it is a bit odd to us for him to speak this way. But when we consider that Paul, as he's introducing himself, is making a clear um, declaration of his of his apostleship as someone who's been called and and invested with divine authority to be an apostle of the living God. When we realize that this is what he's talking about, maybe him using some grammar that's not too far from a royal we, it's not that strange. It's possible that he's talking about not just himself, but all the apostles with him. That's rather unlikely in this context. He doesn't make any other references to the other apostles, generally speaking. It's an editorial we. He's speaking about himself. You may as well read it as him saying, I, through whom I have received grace and apostleship. And that's really the next question. What is it that Paul has received? What is it that Paul has received from Jesus Christ our Lord? He it's right there. He's received grace and apostleship. And again, there's some, gram some grammatical 
construction here that our English translations don't always handle very well. Grace and apostleship, and I need to make sure I get this right because I understand this term. I just can't pronounce this term. It's a hendiadus. It means that there's two words being used connected by a conjunction. There's two words that are that are being communicated as one idea. So, for example, not on days that we're seeing lately, but, you know, in the wintertime, when you find that patch of sun outside and you sit down and you're enjoying it, you might say that it's nice and warm in that spot. Now, you're not saying two different things about that spot out in the sun. You're saying the same thing using two terms. It's the same kind of construction. It's nice and warm. It's nicely warm. Or you might just mean that it's comfortable. You're using two separate words to communicate one singular idea. And that's what Paul is doing here in verse 5 when he says that he has received grace and apostleship. It's, it's two words communicating one idea. So we might even say that Paul is saying that I have received a gracious apostleship from the Lord Jesus. He mentioned his apostleship back in verse 1. It's one of the ways he identifies himself. Apostles, you remember, are called directly by Christ to serve as his heralds and ambassadors in the early church. This office of apostle is what gives Paul the right to address the Christians at Rome, and for that matter, the Christians sitting here in this room. He speaks with the authority of the risen Lord Jesus. And this is exactly what he was appointed to do. To proclaim the words of our God. So that, what is it then to, to, to call this apostleship that he has something that is of grace? What is it for his apostles, apostleship to be, to be the same as grace, to be, to be a gracious apostleship? John Murray, in his commentary on this text, makes the point that this is the first time in this letter that we see the mediation of Christ. Through whom? At the beginning of verse 5. Something that has come to Paul from Christ. Not because Paul is somebody, but because Jesus is somebody. Because he's called Paul to this service. And this is the point here, that Paul's apostleship, his ministry, is not from himself. It is from his Christ. It is from Jesus who rules and reigns his church in heaven. Paul did not assume his apostleship. You know, if you know the story of Paul, you can go back and read Acts 9 to be reminded he wasn't walking along one day and thought, you know what, I really want to be a missionary for Jesus. That's, that's not what happened. That's not usually what happens. Jesus calls people. He drew Paul out of a life of rebellion and wickedness to himself. Paul's ministry is something that he has received from Jesus. And as he mentions that, it... It behooves us to be reminded of the grace that we have received from Jesus. You know, none of us are Christians because we decided to become a Christian. Now, maybe when you became a Christian, that was the terminology you used. It was certainly the terminology I used, that I chose to believe on Christ. But even as I reflect on my Baptist upbringing to a point, and the Baptist minister under which I sat when I was converted, I can look back and consciously say, that was nothing of my own decision. But all of God drawing me to Himself. And isn't that your testimony too? 
that, that our membership in God's family is nothing of ourselves, but is all of just like Paul's gracious apostleship, something that, that God has done for us, that Christ has, has done for us, that He's drawn us to Himself. It's something that we have received. Paul's ministry is not from himself, it's from Christ. But secondly, Paul's ministry is not for himself either. It's for all the nations. And really when we say that, we're simply referring to, to the, the universal scope of the ministry of the gospel. It's there at the end of verse 5. We'll just read all of it. Through whom, speaking of Christ, we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations. Now we're mixing this up a little bit. And the point we're driving at here is, is what's the purpose of Paul's apostleship? What's the purpose of his ministry? It is to bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations. Martin Luther makes this point when he writes here. He says, no minister is ordained for his own sake, but on account of others. Some ministers do their work so that they may gain. True ministers minister on behalf of God in the midst of His people for the benefit of the people. And that's what Paul is saying. I have been called by Christ to be an apostle to seek about the obedience of faith among all people. Among everybody that's out there. R.C. Sproul says that the role of an apostle was to lead people from all over the world to obedience to the faith. You know, sometimes that word faith can refer to the substance of the gospel message, right? So the faith that is passed down to us from our ancestors or from our parents. But here, faith, faith means more um, the act of faith or the act of believing in response to the gospel message. It's that faith that we exercise that's produced in us by the life-giving Holy Spirit and we trust on the gospel for salvation. It's that faith. Paul ministers so that everyone in the world may come to obey the gospel message by believing on Jesus and finding salvation from sin. It's the obedience of faith. It's this um, believing on Jesus for salvation. We should back up for a moment, shouldn't we? Trusting that Christ has died in your place for, for a judgment that you deserved for sinning against God. Trusting that He has counted to you a righteousness that you could never have earned so that you are accepted by God and brought into His family. This Gospel message Believing it is an act of obedience. For we know, we know that disbelieving the gospel is an act of sin and rebellion. This is the, the, the obedience of faith. But Paul may, is certainly thinking about more than that. F.F. F. Bruce writes it this way. He says, believing in Christ and keeping His commandments. So he writes about faith and obedience sort of in these terms, saying... These are two things which cannot be separated. There's no true faith without obedience. And there's no, no true obedience without faith. 
That's what James talks about in the second chapter of his epistle, right? That faith without works is okay. You know, that you can get by on it. No, faith without works is dead. Faith without any proof is not faith at all. It's the obedience of faith. John Stott says a true and living faith in Jesus Christ leads inevitably into a lifetime of obedience. This is what Paul's ministry is for, not for his own, you know, fame. You know, Paul wasn't trying to be an apostle so that he could get some of his writings put into a book that would last for for millennia. Paul was exercising his ministry as an apostle so that all people, right, not every single person, but so that all people may come to a saving knowledge of Christ by believing on His name. His ministry is not for Himself. It's for all the nations. But thirdly, Paul's ministry is not to Himself. What I mean by this is that um, it is to Christ. And we're looking at that phrase there that just before the end of verse 5. That all of this, right, the ministry He's been given and the purpose of it is for the sake of His, that is Jesus Christ's name. For the sake of His name. We may ask it this way. What is the end goal of Paul's ministry? And we know, the, we know what it is. Right? It's a preaching of the gospel. We know its purpose is to, to draw people to an obedience of faith. To find life in Christ. But what's the end goal? What's, what's Paul hoping for at the last? When everything will be made clear. What's the end goal of this ministry he's been given? It is all done for the sake of the name of Jesus. It is all for his glory. We may interpret that verse in a different way saying for for the sake of Christ's reputation or for the sake of Christ's glory. His name is everything about who he is, right? Think, Think third commandment. It's everything about who Christ is. His name represents himself. It's all for his sake for His glory, for His reputation and renown. This necessarily means that that the goal, the end goal of the Gospel is not other things. In particular, um, well, let me back up. Let me ask you this. You know, have you ever known someone who had a hard life and that hard life was changed as they came to faith in Christ? There's a video that's been circulating on the internet this week of this man in, in New York um, who, you know, tells us about how he used to be a, a drug and human trafficker, you know, 20 years ago. And now he's he's come to faith in Christ. The Lord converted him and brought him to himself. And his whole life is totally different from the way it used to be. And he speaks publicly about his love for Jesus and and, and these rich reformation themes of God calling him to himself out of his sin and deadness. You know, you've known people like this. I've known people like this who had hard lives and the gospel entered in and all of a sudden their life is turned upside down and changed. And, and it's wonderful. These are great stories. We praise God for bringing folks out of hardship by the gospel. But listen, that kind of social change, if we were to call it that, is not the primary goal of the gospel. Jeffrey Wilson, I feel like Joel Beakey, I'm just advertising tonight, um, all these different books. But um, Jeffrey Wilson has a great little two-volume set. It's a commentary on the New Testament. Um, 
And on this particular verse, he writes, Paul's paramount concern is not philanthropic, but Christocentric. What's the end goal of the gospel? The glory of Christ. The gospel's primary goal is not your well-being, Christian. It's not so that you can feel better. It's not so that you can have a good life. Plenty of Christians in the world, we don't see them enough, do we, in our, in our place. Plenty of Christians in the world live lives of poverty and sickness and quick death. Does that mean the gospel has failed them? No. For the end goal, the telos of the gospel is the glory of Christ. And when one sinner turns to Him in faith and repentance, Christ has been glorified. That is the goal of Paul's ministry. John Stott writes like this, The highest of all missionary motives is neither obedience to the Great Commission nor love for sinners who are alienated and perishing. Now right there we might start to disagree with him. Wait, my motive for obeying, for, for, for missions and for supporting missions isn't the Great Commission? No. My motive for, for, for missions is not love for sinners who are alienated from God? No, he says. The highest of all missionary motives is zeal. Burning and passionate zeal for the glory of Jesus Christ. That's why we do what we do. That's why the church exists. That's why we're here tonight. Not to feel better, but to give all praise and honor and ascription of glory to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Him as Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is also like Paul. Just to sort of pile on phrase after phrase in praise of God and of His gospel. But it is what we have. That the apostleship from Christ, that the apostleship for all nations, Paul's apostleship to Christ's glory. Now Paul turns to his readers and says, you have been transformed by this apostleship ministry. That's why he talks about them there in verse 6. Look at it. He's talking about how this ministry has, has gone to all people, right? In verse 6, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, there's a lot for Paul to say to his readers. And it will develop as the letter develops. Paul says... At least three things here to which I want us to give attention. The first is this. Christians are called by Christ. That's what he says there in verse 6. You know, he's talking sort of, sort of in big pictures about his apostleship and about the purpose of it and the end goal of it. And he's saying it, it, it's, it's for the nations and for the glory of Christ. But in those nations, in that universal scope, you, right? He dials down. He, he gets out of this universal language and dials into the personal you. It's, it's actually good Southern right there. Y'all. Y'all. Including y'all 
who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. The believers in Rome and all believers, even us here tonight, are examples of the fruit of Paul's ministry. You, and I, listen, now I'm talking to you in this room right here on, what is it, August 27th, 2023, at Covenant Presbyterian Church at whatever it is, 645. 645. You, you are fruits of the ministry of the Apostle Paul. How cool is that? You, you, listen, have been called by Christ. Your membership in the people of God is not by accident. It's not some happenstance that you wound up here at some point earlier on in your life and you just kind of kept coming back. We know that evening worshipers come intentionally, right? I don't mean to suggest that you're, that's an accident. You didn't choose to come to Christ, beloved. You have been called out of sin and death to life in Christ. You need to hear that, Christian. He has called you. This is what John talks about in the first chapter of his gospel. To all who did receive him, who believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And then in verse 13, he talks about how this happened. He says, they were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You don't know God because you reached out to him. You know God and you love Him because He has reached down to you and drawn you to Himself in Christ Jesus. You're called by Christ to belong to Him. And we should find so much encouragement in this. And it made me think about Tim's sermon earlier in the week from Romans chapter 8. And those whom He predestined, He also called and those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. He's called you. And you need to follow the chain. He's called you. And He's justified you. And He's glorified you. And Tim talked about it. How, how Paul writes that in the past tense. right? Glorification is a future state of God's people. But Paul writes about it in the past tense. It's like when I tell David Robinson that I have a problem with something and he says, it's done. I'm like, it's not. I can see it. He goes, it's done. I'm like, I, you don't understand. I need you, to, I need you to take care of this. He goes, it's done. That's how sure Paul is. That's how sure God is that you will be glorified. That he speaks about it as if it's already happened. And for you who have been called by Christ, that language is true of you. Whatever we face in this life, death and sickness and everything in between and every, everything in addition, we are headed for glory. And God promises to bring us there. Be encouraged that Christians are called by Christ. Secondly, Christians are, are loved by God. To all those in Rome, verse 7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God. Imagine how significant a statement like that would be to those who were in the Roman church you know, we haven't talked a lot about it, but they were living in a hostile environment. You know, primarily hostile toward Jews, 
Just a few years before this letter would have been uh, received by the Roman Christians, the Jews had been, by Claudius, had been kicked out of Rome again. They'd been ostracized, which is why mainly Gentiles in the church were receiving this letter, is because the Jews had been kicked out by the emperor. But certainly there were remnants of that animosity, still that lingering sense of, of, of being despised by the world in which they lived. Think about how significant that statement coming to them would be that, that they're loved by God. It may not take us long to appreciate that sentiment in our own day and age. You know, you live in a world that frowns upon your faith. The world and the flesh and the devil promise to love you. And they never deliver. And you will always be left coming back for more. That's how sin works, you know. It promises that which it cannot keep. And that which it cannot give and bestow. And so you keep coming back to it, thinking that you might find it again and again and again. And so how significant is it for Paul to look at you, Christian, and say, You are loved by God. doesn't matter who you used to be doesn't matter what you thought this morning doesn't matter the words you said the other day that you've had to go back and apologize for maybe that you haven't yet gone back to apologize for it doesn't matter it doesn't matter how weak you think your faith is it doesn't matter how cold your heart may be you beloved are loved by God That is the attitude that God has toward you. You're not meant to live with an underlying sense of guilt and shame. Because when God looks at his children, he looks at you with love in his eyes. He cherishes you and, and desires you and he clings to you. Christians are called by Christ. Christians are loved by God. And thirdly here, we see that Christians are called to be saints there in verse 7 towards the end to those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints literally it would be something like called to be holy ones or called to be consecrated ones or called to be those who are devoted to God maybe a more overlooked part of, of our gospel when we think about it you know yes we have been set free from sin in the gospel of Jesus Yes, we've been adopted by God in the gospel of Jesus, but he has also set you apart to a holy purpose. Called to be saints. You belong to God. And it's not just, you know, that you're connected to him as your heavenly father. The, the language is more than that. It, 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 it's language of purpose. That you have been taken by God and set aside to do something special with. And I don't mean, you know, that God has a special plan for your life. I mean, He does. I mean that. But that simply being a Christian and living in godliness and walking according to His commandments is what He set you apart for. Not just to sort of get by until you die and go to heaven. But to live as a part of his family and to live close to him and to walk with him and to be set apart as his. And yes, of course, he will use you in ways that you won't imagine. You're set apart, called to be saints. 
It's Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Why? Do you remember this? That we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. You have been called, loved ones, to be devoted to God. Not just in your own movements toward Him, but in His purpose and use of you as His children. In the same way that I've got that one coffee cup that I always pull off the shelf because it is devoted to my drinking of that caffeinated beverage. So also you, each one of you, has been called by God and set apart for His particular use. Called to be saints. Called to walk with Jesus. Called to obey in faith. Lingen Duncan writes, when he thinks about this passage, and says, for, for those of us who live in a cultural context where it's very tempting to keep one foot in the world and the other foot in the body of Christ, the Apostle Paul is issuing here a tremendous challenge. Because what he's saying when he talks about um, that, that we're, we're called by Christ, that, that we're devoted to God, that we're called to be saints, when, when, he's, when he's talking about us... Um, walking with Christ and, and living with Him when He says that we're loved by God and all of these sort of phrases upon phrases that He heaps up, right? You start to get the idea. All of this, Ligon is saying that Paul is saying that the Gospel is all-consuming. It's meant to touch every part of our life. That it claims every area of your life. So there is no living as a Christian with one foot in the world and one foot with Christ. That doesn't exist. There's no Christian that ever lives like that. Because when God calls you, He calls you out of the world and to Jesus. You're called by Christ. You're beloved of God. You're called to be saints set apart to God. And what is it that Paul says to us here in the end? A greeting for all Christians. A reminder of what is yours in Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, grace may be something we've been talking about for the last several verses. Grace is God's undeserved kindness to us in the Gospel. That He's moved toward us when we had no reason for Him to do so. You know, that God would save us at all. That's grace. But maybe what's more significant in this greeting that he gives at the end of verse 7 is that word peace. It's the grace of God that leads to the peace from God. John Murray says it like this. It's only as we appreciate the implications of alienation from God and the reality of the wrath which alienation evinces that we can understand the richness of the biblical notion of peace as enunciated here by the apostle. Friends, there is no reason for you to have peace with God. There is every reason for us to suffer wrath and judgment. 
but for the grace of God. Jesus has suffered for us and brought us close to God. So that that alienation that we once had and that alienation that once would have led us to certain death and that everlastingly, that alienation because of the grace of God has been put to death. And now we have peace with God. This is why we don't live with an underlying sense of guilt. Because our sin has been put to death. And we have peace with God. It's Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. This is your homework. Praise the Lord for all that he has done for you. That's what Paul sort of is trying to communicate in these first seven verses. Now, it's in his special way where he kind of just piles on and piles on and piles on until your brain explodes because you can't comprehend everything that he's trying to explain. But look at what God has done for us. Look at how gracious and kind and merciful he has been to bring us peace with him through our Lord Jesus Christ. All glory and honor be to our God. And friends, I'll say grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. O oh Lord our God, for the sake of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, send your Holy Spirit to write the truth of your word upon our hearts that we may not sin against you. And do it so that Jesus Christ might be praised in all places and all times and for all eternity. And so we pray it in his name. Amen.